everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, you know we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows like tonight's, we host an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York. We've talked about women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. It's going to be a subject of tonight, a little different though. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling. They've been part of New York for 200 years. And we've also looked at the history of punk and opera. We've looked at our library systems, the subway, public art, our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges. Yes, New York has great bridges, among other great things. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Tonight, we're celebrating Women's History Month. It's the third year in a row that we're doing it. And unlike in prior years where we uh, focused on women who might have been well-known, I thought it would be interesting uh, on this show to focus on some women, both past and present, who most of us have not heard of, but whose work and whose ability to impact others is no less profound in the city and in the world. Uh, our first guest is no stranger to Rediscovering New York. It's Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history. And for over 40 years, she's been the guiding New Yorkers, excuse me, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews. Joyce does private walking tours as well as tours that are open to the public. Joyce has published two books. One of them is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan. And another one, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Granite Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if all of this wasn't enough, I keep saying it every time she comes on. The New York Times has called Joyce the doyen of New York City tour guides, a level of acknowledgement and recognition that any tour guide would relish and maybe even kill for. And Joyce, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. How did you get involved in the work you do, bringing New York's history to life for the people lucky enough who can go on your tours? Well, Manhattan history probably changed my life because in the mid-70s, I was working as a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. It wasn't really me. And the walk from the subway to my office wasn't very exciting. But one day I picked up a hundred year old guidebook to New York about New York a hundred years before that. And suddenly Broadway, I could see the Indians, I could see the Dutch, I could see the British. And every daily walk began to be much more interesting. So I felt bad that a lot of other New Yorkers didn't see any of this. And I began telling them in the mid seventies, not that many New Yorkers knew about our history, it seems. And so uh, it started open, opening things up for them. Now, of course, my clients are from all over, 
but I design tours mostly on a level for the people who live in the neighborhoods that I am talking about. I have to think that you've impacted thousands of people, Joyce. I mean, you've been doing this for 45 years now, 44 years. I really Uh, hope so. When I walk around town with a group, somebody will often stop us and say, oh, I took your tour and nice things, which I love to hear. On one tour that we did together, just as an aside, it was uh, we were doing the tour of Chinatown in Little Italy. And we were you were cross you had crossed Canal Street before the group I was with. And I had the speaker that you were Bluetoothing and you were talking and someone turned around and said, that's Joyce Gold. (laughs) So your your fame precedes you. Um, We're devoting this portion of the program to looking at New York women from the past who made a big impact on the city and the world around them. The second half, we're going to uh, speak with two women who've made a big impact now and recently. Um, One of the tours that you give, Joyce, is called The Immigrant, Radical, Notorious Women of Washington Square. Full disclosure, I've been on that tour as well. I looked up the word notorious. It means it's it means famous or well-known, but typically for some bad quality or deed. It's distinct from famous. Um, personally, I love the term. Many people would prefer to think of these trailblazers who accomplished so much in a society that in so many ways was dominated by men as famous. But you picked the word notorious. Why did you pick the word notorious? Well, I think some people from out of the village might have used it as a put-down term. But I think that a lot of the women in the village... Uh, in Greenwich Village, just took it as a badge of honor that they did something that other people wouldn't do. They were outside the norm. They had original thoughts. And so I love to put that in the title of one of maybe 35 different tours I do just Mm. in Greenwich Village. The women's tour is one of my favorites. Um, Before the show, you sent me a list of 27 extraordinary women but the 22 minutes or so that we have for this segment, there's no way to speak about all of them. Um, so I thought we'd focus on some of the women who most of our listeners won't recognize. I didn't recognize a lot of them when you sent me the list. So I was intrigued by the names I didn't recognize. And so we're going to talk about uh, uh, some, of the, some of those women. Let's start with an educator, Elizabeth Irwin. Um, not the least, because actually I didn't learn about her, but that's because we shot a video last week about Hudson Square. And you talked about Elizabeth Irwin, and I had not heard of her before. Uh, Who was Elizabeth Irwin, and what did she do in the city? Well, she was an educator, and at the beginning of the 20th century, she and a few other people had ideas about how to teach that was very different from the standard teaching. She had a job with the school system, and she she worked at PS61, but she had a feeling that you don't lecture to children, you give them field trips, you have them do things. And you teach to that particular child. How do you know who the particular child is? Well, maybe you give them a battery of tasks and then know what they they do. And uh, she was uh, really put down by the school system. I love the quotes. They said, parents want their seven-year-olds to be able to read the names on a list when they sent them to the store to get the correct change and count them and to read the names on street signs. This was not how she taught. And uh, they fired her. But she had some parents who loved that kind of do it and learn it that way teaching. And so she, um, the Presbyterian uh, organization offered her a church uh, to use for classrooms. And that's how the children learned. It was very exciting. Still going strong. It's called Little Red Schoolhouse. It's in Greenwich Village. 
And there's now a high school that is appropriately called, it's on Charlton Street, it's appropriately called Elizabeth Irwin for her. Well, speaking of educators, someone else who actually had a profound impact was Henrietta Rodman. Um, she challenged the notion that women who were school teachers had to be unmarried. Um, you know, I don't want to use the S word here, you know, the whole uh, spinster, but that was also sadly part of the, you know, the whole um, um, uh, prejudice of the era. Um, do you want to talk about Rodman and how she changed uh, how women were able to be in education? Yes, one thing I love about talking about the women, especially the political activists of Greenwich Village, is some of them chose a part of equality that appeals to them. Now, Elizabeth uh, Henrietta Rodman was a member of the Liberal Club in Gramercy Park, and they did not allow African-American members, which she did not like. And uh, she, she had some African-American friends they wouldn't admit into the club. And so she left Gramercy Park, opened the Liberal Club in Greenwich Village. And of course, as you said, women who were married didn't even have to be pregnant, but if they were married, as soon as they got married and taught in the public school system, they were fired, presumably because maybe someday they would become pregnant and that would be too shocking for the children. Men, of course, were not fired for any of these reasons. So that was one of her big, uh, big topics that women should not be fired for being married. Speaking of political clubs, um, another woman on our list, Marie Jenny Howe, uh, started a club called Heterodoxy. Do you want to talk about Marie Jenny Howe and what she did? Yes, it was a wonderful idea. And I sort of am trying to get some women to start such a club these days. Uh, her husband, by the way, ran Ellis Island for a number of years. But she started Heterodoxy in 1912, and it was called a unique luncheon club for unorthodox women. They met from 1912 until the early years of World War II. They met every other week except in the summer, and it was for women. Most of them had made their own money. They were journalists, they were teachers, they were activists, they were in politics, and they had wildly divergent views. Some of them were ardent Republicans or Democrats or liberals or communists. Some of them became communists later. And um, they loved arguing. They loved discussing all of these different ideas. They wouldn't allow reporters to cover them. So it's a little unclear what all they covered. Agnes DeMille, actually, the choreographer, was the youngest member because her mother was a member of this. But um, in their personal lives, they were gay, they were straight, they were into free love, they were married, they were unmarried. Some of them were in long-term lesbian relationships and they just loved discussing everything. Interestingly enough, with all of this variety, there was only one topic that almost split the club and that was whether or not the U.S. should be involved in World War I. But other than that, they love to disagree. I think of the view on television as a slightly uh, watered down version of heterodoxy. But I think it takes brave women to want to want to engage other women in different points of view. Some of the women we're talking about uh, were from New York originally, and some of them moved here from other places. Uh, Ada Clare was from South Carolina. Who was she and, and, and what was she known for? Ada Clare? Yes. 
Well, her name was McElhenney and she came from South Carolina before the Civil War. Her family had money and they lost it during the war. She liked to hang out with creative people. One of her places in the village that she frequented was a literally underground bar. It was just under Broadway at Bleecker Street called Faf's. Other people who hung out there in the 1850s were Walt Whitman and Horace Greeley. And, uh, and she enjoyed their company and they enjoyed hers. But in the Civil War, her family lost their money. And there was really not many things that a woman could legally do at that time. And she went to the stage and she became an actress. So although before the Civil War, her name was McElhenney, she took on what I think is a wonderful stage name for a Southern belle, Ada Clare. Yeah. That was her name, Ada Clare. And, and she, she was also known as the Queen of Bohemia. Uh, yes, yes. Not Bohemia in, the Czech, in Czechoslovakia, but oh, a no. different kind of Bohemia. <laughs> That's right, as in La Boheme. Um, yes, uh, they said, well, what is it to be Bohemian? She said, it means I'm not a victim of feeling or good taste. And she tried to do things that were out of the norm. She had a very flagrant affair with the composer Louis Moreau Gottschalk. Uh, she checked into a hotel in Paris and signed the register Miss Claire and Son. And that's what she did. And of oh. course, this was all very newsworthy. People love to hear about these out of the way places. And, and it was kind of fun for people. Mm. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our celebration on Rediscovering New York of Women's History Month with my first guest, Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. We'll be back in a moment. Okay. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. 
We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode, Celebrating Women's History Month. We, it's called Women at, Women at the Forefront. We are looking at women who have made and are making really big impacts, but who may not be on the tip of everyone's tongue. My first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, you can find out about Joyce's tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Uh, Joyce also has an Instagram account, and the name of that is Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, uh, in as we sort of start coming out of the the confines of the pandemic, but but not quite yet, what are some of the offerings that you're providing now to to your your clients? Well, I've been doing a number of private tours, um, people's having birthdays. I think I've done three private tours for people with birthdays. I'm doing one next week for an 80-year-old mother with 12 members of the family coming along. Um, I'm designing new tours, Rose Hill, the area uh, basically around Madison Square is one. The Far West 70s is one. The Hudson Square that we refer to is another one. And um, I think I'm going to be, I hope to be offering just show up kinds of tours in the summer, beginning uh, May 30th weekend. I, I think unless there's some resurgent and people stop wearing masks, uh, then I might not be able to do that. But uh, basically it's very safe for outdoors. People are not that crowded together. Everybody wears a mask and that's what's been happening. And let's not forget that uh, latest edition in Brooklyn, the great neighborhood of Fort Greene, which oh, I'm looking I forward to. <laughs> do that with your inspiration oh yours Joyce um moving back to um some uh, maybe not so famous New York women but who had a big impact on the world around them and on the rest of us um let's talk move to the world of art who was Mabel Dodge Lujan well I think of Mabel Dodge as well maybe as uh as the teacher that I was discussing uh as women who do kind of traditional women things Women didn't tend to be doctors, but they did tend to be teachers and people who threw parties and got people together. And that was Mabel Dodge. She came from Buffalo, moved to Paris with her husband, became a very good friend of uh, Gertrude Stein and helped make people aware of Gertrude Stein and her writing. But when she came back to New York, she didn't really want to be in this country but uh, she was convinced to once a week have a salon whereby she would choose a topic. She called it a living topic, things that people were talking about anyway. And people who had never spoken about certain topics in public spoke at the Mabel Dodge Salon. Brill talked about uh, Freudianism. 
Margaret Sanger talked about contraception. Uh, Big Bill Haywood talked about the labor movement after the Triangle Shirtways factory fire of 1911 in the village. And people, John Sloan talked about a new kind of painting. It was very exciting. And if people were interested in a certain topic, then they would go to her salon at 9th Street. So she wasn't a writer. She wasn't a big thinker, but she was very good at getting people together and illuminating topics that hadn't been discussed. This had a very big effect on the village because the idea of these sometimes sexual topics being discussed in a Fifth Avenue brownstone seemed very newsworthy and it made papers all over the United States and really put the village on the map as a place of original ideas and notoriety. So many, an artist elsewhere in the country read about it and said, I belong in Greenwich Village. I don't belong where I am. So she had a lot of effects. And after she leaves Greenwich Village, she goes to Taos and helps start the uh, art colony in Taos, New Mexico as well. Let's move to journalism. Uh, Who was Ida Tarbell? Ida Tarbell was a woman who had from uh, Western Pennsylvania, who had been in Paris, very sophisticated and educated woman. Her father was an oil man, and he was one of the people that John D. Rockefeller approached with a very simple choice, join me or I will put you out of business. And Rockefeller bankrupt her father. So what she did was analyze all the machinations that he had been involved with to become such a major, major company of standard oil. Uh, in 1902, 1904, 1902 in, a news, in, a, in McClure's magazine and 1904 in two huge volumes, she showed America how big business got that way. Before that, they had no idea how the trusts, as they call them, worked, the monopolies worked. And after Tarbell wrote her pieces, a lot of Americans, including Teddy Roosevelt, didn't have the stomach for these big uh, companies. It's a, it's a place with, it's a subject and a topic that is very current today, to say the least. Mm. Well, let's stay on the uh, topic of journalists, but, but move forward by a couple of decades. Uh, Dorothy Thompson, um, she has the distinction of being the first foreign journalist who was expelled from Nazi Germany. Uh, but uh, after she came back to New York, she also did some great things. Who was she and what did she, what was she known for? Well, she was a great journalist. She was one of the people, the foreign correspondents in Europe in the late in the 30s who could see the totalitarianism that was coming to that continent and to the world and warn people about it, which is why she had the enormous honor of being thrown out by Hitler. She was married to Sinclair Lewis. They lived in the village north of Washington Square, and uh, she was a reporter. So she had a very big influence. Um, he wrote Main Street, Babbitt, and Arrowsmith, but uh, she was shot at at the Bulgarian uprising in 1923 and had a very colorful career. She had a lot of affairs, affairs with men, affairs with women. You know, the boundaries weren't too set for her. Well, in 1939, she was on a cover of Time magazine, um, uh, and I love this, 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 this quote. She was, uh, there was a picture of her speaking into an NBC radio microphone, 
And uh, the picture was captioned as she rides in the smoking car and it declared that she and Eleanor Roosevelt are undoubtedly the most influential women in the United States. Um, <laughs> and of course, Eleanor Roosevelt also lived in Greenwich Village in the 1940s. But did she ride in the smoking car? <laughs> <laughs> she took a gun on her trip around the country in a car with her good friend. Oh, wow. Eleanor. Yeah, I love that image. That's uh, we'll have uh, to have save that for a topic for another show. Who was Susan Keating Glassbell? Uh, Susan Glassbell. She uh, came from Iowa, came to New York, wrote uh, stories, wrote plays, um, and she uh, she and some other New York writers go to Provincetown, Massachusetts during the teens. And as many New York, that's the teens from a century ago, not the teens from a couple of years right, ago. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And like many New Yorkers was complaining about the Broadway theater. They said, it doesn't ask anything of people. It's very stodgy. It's really just a lot of words with song, stringing songs together. And they decided to put on plays that didn't have to be making money. And they did it in Provincetown. And then they came to McDougal Street in Greenwich Village and started the Provincetown Playhouse to put on plays with literary merit. Um, they put on Eugene O'Neill's Bound East. Well, Bound East for Cardiff was the first play he ever had produced. And that was that they put on in Massachusetts. But in uh, on McDougal Street, they put on Emperor Jones. And the good news was that it was a big success. The bad news was that it uh, it needed a much bigger, it got a much bigger audience that could be accommodated at the Provincetown Playhouse. But it had a very big effect on the rest of the country, as a number of Greenwich Village ideas did. Uh, no self-respecting American city could not have plays with literary merit. And of course, as we know, the theater around the United States is very, very high level. Well, speaking of groundbreaking theater and groundbreaking playwriting, uh, Lorraine Hansberry was from New York, and she sadly did not live very long. Who was she and what, and what impact did she have? Well, she was a woman who came from Chicago and came to New York and uh, wrote Raisin in the Sun. Uh, family in tur turmoil who sought to escape the slums of Chicago. This was the first play ever produced on Broadway written by an African-American woman. There were some black written plays like Shuffle Along in the 1920s on Broadway but um, she was the first woman to put on a play. She also uh, uh, mounted sign in Sidney Brustein's window. She wrote to be young, gifted, and black. She died uh, 1965. She was 35 years old, and there is now a plaque on her home in the village. Mm. Joyce, we're going to be out of time in a minute or two, like so often happens. We could go on for, for hours. Um, I want to end with someone who most people have not heard of. Maybe she was active maybe about 100 years ago, and that was Clara Lemlich. Who was she? What did she do? Well, Clara Lemlich was an immigrant woman who worked in the garment factories. And in 1908-1909, police beat up people because they were very much on the side of management. And she had ribs broken. It was terrible. So in 1909 at Cooper Union, there was a big union meeting, labor meeting. And what should they do about 
uh, the terrible, terrible situation in the factories. G uh, Samuel Gomper said, this is not a good time to go on strike. But Lemlich got up and said, I think we, sh we must go on strike now. Her presentation, which was in Yiddish, in the audience was translated into Italian, into English. And in 1909, the first woman-led uh, garment strike in the country, the first woman-led strike in the country started. It was called the Uprising of the 20,000. And she was very much a part of that. When did the International Lady Garment Workers Union uh, found? When was that started? I think it was founded in 1900. So it was 11 years old by this time, but they were mm. very, un uh, nine years old, but they were very underfinanced. They didn't get many uh, uh, improvements from the uprising in 1909. Had they done, done that, they might have not had the horrible Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire two years mm. later where 146 people died in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. Well, Joyce, thank you so much. Um, there are a number of, of great women that we were not able to get to, even on the, the list, the call down list. But I want to encourage any of my listeners to all of my listeners to think about Joyce's tour, the Radical immigrant notorious women of Greenwich Village. I've been on it and it's a great, great tour. Thank you, Jeff. Um, if people want to email me, Joyce at Joyce Gold History Tours, I will send them the schedule as soon as it comes out. Great. Well, thank you, Joyce. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with two women who are not so much historical, but their work is actually ongoing and they're impacting people today, many people today, in fact. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. 
Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Support for the program comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a message, a mortgage that's right for you. Sorry, Chris. Please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 212- Four nine five zero three one seven. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One other note before we get to our next guests: even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our next two guests. First is Wendy Hilliard. Wendy is a USA Gymnastics Hall of Fame member. She was the first African-American woman to represent the U.S. in rhythmic gymnastics and coached a 1996 Olympian and was the first Black president of the Women's Sports Foundation. Wendy was an Olympic sportscaster and Broadway performer. She also was the director of sports for the New York City 2012 Olympics and Paralympics bid. In 1996, she founded the Wendy Hillier Gymnastics Foundation, which has provided free and low-cost gymnastics for nearly 25,000 urban youth in New York City. And alongside Wendy is Alexis Page. Alexis was born in the Bronx and raised in Harlem. In 2003, she joined the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation, and after competing there for three years, in 2009, Paige's competitive career skyrocketed when she placed fifth on the Rhythmic Gymnastics Junior National Team. From there, she went on to compete internationally in Cuba, in France, in Portugal, Spain, and Slovenia, and like her mentor, Wendy Hilliard, represented diversity within the sport. After placing third on the national team two more times, Alexis retired from the sport in 2012 due to injuries and decided to return to the foundation as head coach, where she currently trains the gymnasts. Alexis also attended Howard University and in 2016 transferred to Hunter College here in New York, where she graduated with a degree in human biology. Wendy Hilliard and Alexis Page, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. So glad to be here. Alexis, you grew up in the Bronx. Wendy, are you from New York originally? I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Okay, well, that's going to lead into uh, another question later on about uh, the second uh, branch of the of the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation. When did each of you decide that you wanted to be gymnasts? Let's see, I'll start since I went first. <laughs> um, I was actually, I, I didn't start gymnastics until I was about 12, actually. 
And I um, just saw it on TV and was just mentalized. I was a swimmer um, before I, I kind of did both. And then I decided that I wanted to concentrate on gymnastics, but it was just something I saw on TV and wanted to do. Alexis, when did you decide that you wanted to, to be a gymnast? Um, well, like many young gymnasts, I just taught myself how to do skills or quote unquote flips around the house. And um, then I was known as one of those like flip girl, that flip girl that like flipped down the street. And um, my mom worked alongside Wendy's husband at the same company. And he told my mom, just come down to Wendy's Saturday program. And that's how I started I want to ask you both a question about rhythmic gymnastics. I'm, I wouldn't even call myself a layperson. I'm almost not very aware of the details of gymnastics, except I appreciate the sport. I'm, you know, watching the competition on TV and being totally awed by the precision and the focus and the concentration and the excellence of the athletes who are engaged in it and who do it well. Is rhythmic gymnastics different from gymnastics in general? Is it a special kind of gymnastics? It is. So gymnastics has different disciplines, right? So gymnastics is movement. The term is on movement, either on or with apparatus. So when what they call artistic gymnastics, the most popular event, gymnasts work on apparatus, like on the balance beam, on the bars or on the parallel bars or for men's, the rings. In rhythmic gymnastics, we work with hand apparatus, with the hoop, with the ball, with the ribbon. And then there are also other gymnastics, which we call tumbling and trampoline. Trampoline is an Olympic sport, the big trampoline people see, and also tumbling. So there are different disciplines of gymnastics. Uh, you tend to be able to, the, the base of the sport is very similar. You have to be strong. You have to be able to be flexible. But when you move on, the disciplines determine what type of equipment you work on or with. Mm. How old were, were each of you when you started to be trained by, by coaches? I was seven, seven years old. Yeah, and I was 12. There's a reason I'm asking you that. I'll get to it in in a minute. Um, But I want to ask you both about your experiences when you first went into the sport um, and if you faced racism when you were getting involved in gymnastics in the beginning. You know, that's an interesting question. And I think most athletes would say this, is that when you get into a sport, you just get into the sport because you love it, especially if you're going to take it to a high level. I was in Detroit. And so my story is initially I started right in the city of Detroit, but they didn't have the equipment I wanted to be on, right? So we had to go out to the suburbs. When we went out to the suburbs, we were um, we met these coaches who had just come from the former Soviet Union and they were working at the Jewish Community Center. And so my mom, who didn't like the fact that we had to drive so far to take gymnastics and it was really expensive, like $500 for the year. She was like, oh, it's so expensive. <laughs> So uh, she convinced the recreation department in Detroit to hire these coaches. So as a result, I had these really great coaches that ended up being four husband and wife team, Zena and Vladimir Marinoff, and then Rosa Litva and Mike Frieden. They had these four coaches that taught in the recreation department. So my experience was in the city of Detroit, in the recreation department, in my community uh, with these really great coaches. So it was always very mixed. Now, when I got on the national level and the international level, that's when things changed because there were very few black gymnasts competing. And I definitely had my ups and downs with that. Mm. 
How about you, Alexis? Did you did you face racism from people around you in the sport when you first started getting coached? Well, like Wendy said, when you start the sport, you're not really focused on racism. You're just starting. You're starting it because you want to do it. Um, but I was fortunate enough to start on the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation, so okay, well. it was a diverse team. It was black and brown girls, um, and we had an amazing coach, Karina Rudneva, um, who didn't really focus on our skin tone. Uh, she just wanted the best for us. But it wasn't until I got on team, the national team, that I, and I got older and I started seeing like slight differences and how I was treated. And um, I would see my coaches or hear my coaches uh, reference to stereotypes um, that are associated with black people. And that's when I noticed that it, it didn't really phase me as much as the classism because rhythmic gymnastics is a very expensive sport. And um, I came from an underprivileged community. So that's really more so what I faced. Wendy, what was your inspiration for getting the foundation started? Uh, pretty much what you're talking about. Part of it was that by this time, um, I had competed, I was on the national team for 10 years, and then I coached for another four or five years, six years. And I really loved elite level sport, but it's very difficult. I mean, you're in the gym, you know, four, six hours a day, six days a week, either as an athlete or as a coach. And also after I retired, I didn't see many more girls of color in the sport and the sport was getting way, way even more expensive than when I did. So that's really what inspired me. By this time, I had been president of the Women's Sports Foundation. So I understood a lot about advocacy. I understood about raising money. I It was really like the right to compete on different levels. And so that's what inspired me to start my foundation. My athlete had gone off to be on the Olympic team. And so it was a great time for me to kind of pivot and go back to grassroots sports. Mm. I want to ask you a question about the support um, in, initially before we take a break. You know, um, sometimes when people start nonprofits, uh, it's easy to create a wave of enthusiasm and to get a lot of grassroots support, but sometimes it's, it's uphill. I mean, it's always a challenge to get people to reach into their pockets and say, we believe in you, you know, you know, how much can I give you and help you with this? Um, what kind of support did you originally get from the community when you, when, when you wanted to start the foundation? Wow, that's a really great question. So initially we started with kind of two grants, the Olympic committee, because rhythmic gymnastics was relatively new, it was the first Olympic sport in 1984, they had a grant for emerging sports. So they were giving money to support growing non-traditional emerging sports and rhythmic gymnastics was one of those. The other one was basically from the city. Um, it was Department of Youth and Community Development and they were doing some grants for basically youth development under school, un, after school programs. So the great thing is, is that my degree is in journalism, so I knew how to write because that's what you have to do a lot of when you do grants and things like that. So um, those are my first supporters. And then we just, it's just constant. Raising money is a constant thing that you go to your community, but we work with our public officials. It's kind of funny because uh, Gail Brewer was a city council woman where I first started the foundation. And, and Gail is Manhattan's fabulous borough president. Yes. And so she supports it still. I mean, she comes to our meets and she comes to our events all the time. So she's actually been with us for a long, long time. But that's what you do. You reach out to your public officials to also get support. 
We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Wendy Hilliard and Alexis Page. Uh, Wendy is the founder of the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation. And Alexis is the head coach. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and our special episode celebrating Women's History Month here in New York. My guests in the second part of the program are Wendy Hilliard and Alexis Page. Wendy is the founder of the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation, and Alexis is the head coach. Um, Alexis, when did you join the foundation as the head coach? Well, I started coaching in 2012, but I didn't become the head coach until about 40 years ago um actually five so 2016 you both started taking lessons at different points in your lives you were 12 Wendy and Alexis you were six um what age do a lot of the kids who 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 get involved in the foundation start start their coaching start coaching or start training training I'm sorry (laughs) I told you I was a lay person when it came to gymnastics don't don't know much about it I can throw that one to Alexis because she's Get all the young ones. <laughs> um, so for rhythmic, you're supposed to start training around, let's say, six. And like European countries, they start at four, as early as four. Yeah. But um, I started at seven and I ended up fine. So I think that you can start from like four to seven. Yeah. 
Does the foundation have programming um, aside from just uh, uh, training and lessons? What kind of things do you offer beyond, you know, typical uh, lessons and, and training? You know, so pre-COVID, actually, we really have a pretty robust program. We have a big partnership with the Harlem Children's Zone. And at the Harlem Army, we do classes. We do mommy and me classes, we call them, or parent and me classes, where it starts at 18 months. And that's really an introduction to gymnastics, but it's really, really fun for little ones to be able to get on a trampoline and just jump around, especially in New York. And we take those classes all the way up. So we have our, our signature classes are Saturday uh, community classes where kids learn gymnastics. And that's where we kind of choose those that want to take gymnastics further. And then we have adult classes. So we, we really miss it. We do. We have a free adult class twice a week, which is really quite fun. But I would say in addition to gymnastics, because gymnastics is very... Um, well, it's very progressive and you have to have a lot of elements. So especially in rhythmic, the kids have to learn ballet. They have to learn how to stretch. They have to learn to take care of their bodies. They have to learn about music, right? Rhythmic is, a, is one of the sports where you, it, music is critical. But I think our, our young people in our program, we do a lot of reading. We do a lot with nutrition. We're really big on teaching kids about nutrition when they're young so that they can understand how it affects their bodies, especially in sport. We do some reading, sports safety, and we do have what we call a work development. So when the kids get maybe around 12 or 13 or so, our team kids, we bring them in and they help assist the coach. And so we're trying to give them those skills so that when they go away to college or for whatever reason, by the time they finish with us, because they've been doing gymnastics since they were like seven years old, after eight or nine years, they can start teaching. And it's one of the skills they take with them when they leave us. I mean, one of the things that you do with the foundation is to touch inner city kids. Um, Alexis, can you share any stories of young people who've been engaged with the foundation and um, what it's meant for them in their lives to be to be part of it? Yes. So um, one of my uh, former gymnasts, Hilary uh, Pina Perez, she came from Italy, actually. And um, she came here and she didn't know any English. And I was actually walking her from school to practice at times, from practice to school. And uh, we were coming through Google Translate and everything. And uh, what a friend she, Google Translate. It's, an ama it's amazing. You right? <laughs> it is amazing. Um, but she grew so much with the program. She was one of our highest level gymnasts. And uh, sadly, she moved during quarantine, during uh, COVID when it first uh, happened. But uh, she still comes to visit. And she's an amazing uh, gymnast and uh, supporter to our program. You know, Wendy, I was going to ask you a two-part question. Um, for the first part was going to be that there are lots of places in the country that would benefit from your foundation's work. Why Detroit? I know the answer to that now. Um, but uh, uh, when you started the, the, the branch of the foundation in Detroit, was it easy to harness the resources and support that you needed to, to start out in Detroit? You know, that's a good question. So it was easy in one way. The one way that was easy is that I had my teammates in Detroit, right? So they knew how we, we teach gymnastics in a specific way that was based on my coaches and now with Lexis and her coaches we have a way of teaching. And so 
when I went to Detroit, I knew that all of my teammates would be able to contribute and, and run, you know, hit the ground running. And one of my coaches from New York had moved to Detroit. So we were able to do programmings. We actually got uh, equipment donated to us because we decided to start in 2016, where everybody's pretty excited about Simone Biles in the Olympics. So we were able to, to hit the ground running with programming, but the long-term administration took a little bit more. And so we just actually expanded our board and, in, and included four people from Detroit. So we really wanted to have our model set, our business model, so we can expand in other places. And so what it is, is that we have one board of directors, four of them we have, you know, now we have 16, but four of them are, are specifically concentrated on Detroit. And so what we're finding out is that we can now, after all this time, program how to do gymnastics, but getting the support, you have to be very local to make sure to get mm. support from that area. Well, speaking of local programming, I know it's been canceled this year, uh, but do you want to talk about the Harlem Invitational and what that is? Yes. Well, the Harlem Invitational is our annual competition. We host it at the Harlem Armory, the HCV Armory, and it's 50,000 square feet. The armories, as you know, armories are really amazing venues, really, you know, 70 foot ceilings, no columns, just big open drill floor. So and the Harlem Armory is especially beautiful because it's an art deco structure too. So it's, uh, you know, really, really something. Yeah, it's a very special place. And so what we do is we invite uh, people from around the country. We have up to like a thousand kids that come to Harlem to be a part of our Harlem Invitational. It's like a three-day competition, rhythmic gymnastics, artistic gymnastics, tumbling trampoline. What's really fun is that through our partnership, we, as I told you, we concentrate on good nutrition. So we can't have bad, um, what is it, uh, fast food at most competitions, like no hot dogs and pizza slices and potato chips. So what we did is we have soul food. So we have baked chicken and some greens and some planktons and smoothies. So now everybody that comes to our meet loves it because we have such good food, but it also gives everyone an opportunity to come to our home. It's like for our kids, as we said, gymnastics is very expensive and travel is one of the big expenses. Mm -hmm. So now when they come to us, all of our kids, because whenever we do events at the Harlem Armory, it's always free, right? Everybody can come free. So it's a big celebration. Our kids get to show off and we get to show off Harlem to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. We're almost out of time in the less than a minute that we have left. Um, are there any programs that you have on the drawing board that you're looking forward to uh, uh, unveiling after after the pandemic? I don't know. My, Alexis and I just talked about this a couple of, a couple of days ago because we're doing a lot um, online and we've actually reached a lot of people. Uh, we were talking about doing some more classes to keep them online, to keep kids engaged about improving their gymnastics skills. So we're, we, we look forward to on-site gymnastics because that's the best. You got to get on equipment or work with equipment, but we are going to keep our online presence so that we can support athletes affordably online to get better in gymnastics. And how can people find out about programming at the foundation and possibly to support you? Well, I say they should come to our website, windyhillier.org. We are all over social media, and I got to give it to Alexis and the staff. They're fabulous. We're on mm -hmm. Instagram. We're really good. TikTok. You can find us Twitter, Facebook. Um, and it's really great because I do want to say that my staff did a fabulous job when we were hit with COVID of engaging with the mm -hmm. kids, and they really found a way to support them. So 
you know, come to our website, donate to what we do. We have great staff and we have great gymnastics and it'll be so worth it. And you do such important work and it impacts so many people's lives. Wendy, Alexis, thank you so much for being guests on the show. Um, my second guests on our special program celebrating Women's History Month here in New York have been Wendy Hilliard, who's the founder of the Wendy Hilliard Gymnastics Foundation, and Alexis Page, who's the head coach of the foundation. If you have any comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens here in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer, as always, is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our production assistant is Leah Coppola. And our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Makes Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc do you love or are you intrigued about new york city and its neighborhoods i'm jeff goodman host of rediscovering new york a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. 
Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 